0: From John 4:19 to 24. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain, nor yet at Jerusalem, worship the Father. Ye worship ye know not what? We know what we worship. For salvation is of the Jews." But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And then from uh, St. Thomas on Separate Substances, C19, he says, Scripture habitually designates something to be incorporeal through the name Spirit welcome back to truth from the text my name is aaron ventura i'm joined again by my co-host ryan hurd this is episode four and i think today we're going to try to do some actual theology together so uh, ryan is going to introduce what is uh, perhaps the most fundamental distinction when it comes to talking about god which is uh, this distinction between positive and negative divine names or predicates if you remember Last episode, we'll see if you did not understand episode three and what a predicate is. We'll try to make that a little more clear this morning. So um, I'll turn it over to you, Ryan. Could you first remind us just what a divine name is and then explain this first
1: division of divine names? Yeah, so as we mentioned last time, uh, name in this context is a pretty close synonym to what we say in English as a predicate. And if you recall, predicates are things like the dog is brown. Brown here is a predicate which happens to be affirmed of the dog. Brownness is found in the dog. Uh, this aspect is truth that we uh, compose to the dog. Um, the apple is red. Socrates is wise. Red, wise. Um, these are also predicates. Um, similarly, in theology, we make predications of God, or we affirm or negate things of God. And the things that we are predicating, either affirming or denying, are what we take up or usurp from uh, among creatures. So when we're saying God is wise, uh, we're taking creaturely wisdom, and we are affirming it to God because our wisdom is similar to his And that is one of the most basic things that we do in theology. We take up these positive names, simple perfections like wisdom and predicate them of God. Um, Likewise, we will uh, take certain uh, uh, properties of creatures like bodiness or technical term is corporeality. Uh, But in this case, we don't affirm them of God. We negate them from God. So we say God is not a body. In this case, body is also a predicate, but it's not one being affirmed, it's one being denied. So those are some examples of divine names. Um, Wisdom, uh, specifically as affirmed of God, and bodiness, specifically as negated of God or incorporeality, would be some basic examples of divine names or predicates, and also is gesturing at that fundamental distinction between all of our names All divine means are fundamentally divided into positive or negative. So those are some examples and we can dive into more of what that means here as we go along.
0: Yeah, one of the things, uh, reading some of your notes um, on this lecture topic from that, uh, if you have not gotten it yet, the forthcoming God is series. uh, Brian, when is that supposed to be public, uh, publicly accessible to folks? Uh, end of February. Okay, so you got another, I guess, another month until it comes out. Um, but uh, you made you make this really good um, example that helped me, I think, better explain predicates to people, which is, if you say Socrates is a dog, but you have never seen a dog, and don't know what a dog is, you can say the words, uh, you can put the word dog to Socrates. Socrates is dog, but your mind is empty of any uh, content or truth about Socrates. It doesn't tell you anything if you don't actually know what a dog is. And so it might help people understand a predicate is the kind of intellectual truth content in your mind that's connected to that name or that word that you are saying. And uh, the example you used of a body. um, So if you've read John 4 and you read God is a spirit, that could mean absolutely nothing to you, or it could mean something very, uh, uh, untrue, or it could mean something true to you, depending on what is in the mental, uh, you know, what is in your mind when you are thinking spirit and then you're putting it to God. And, and then, uh, I forget if we've said this already, but God is a spirit is, uh, paraphrastic or, um, it is a, I don't know, a better way of saying, all. paraphrasing, <laughs> <laughs> it is a rephrasing of a negative name that God is not a body. And the more that I thought about this first negative name, God is not a body, the more I realized, do I really know what a body is? Like I'm in one, I have one, but you know, I spent a week thinking about a wind is something I cannot see. Sound is something I cannot see. So they're invisible, not seeable, and yet they are bodies in a certain sense. We talk about the heavenly bodies that move through the sky. So uh, even on a very simple negation, negative name, God is not a body or God is incorporeal or God is a spirit said paraphrastically. Uh I found I've had to do quite a bit of work to just get my mind around like, what am I saying or what am I really not saying about God when I say God is incorporeal? Mm. So do you want to give any more comments on how you have developed your own uh, mind on God is not a body or God is incorporeal?
1: Yeah, for a really long time in theology, you can rely on just your common sense, knowledge, informed by your experience in the world. Um, And for example, in in this case, everyone knows what body is because we're surrounded by bodies. We also are or have a body and things like this. We can point to a body um, and such. Even though we are gonna struggle, most likely most of us to give an accurate definition uh, that's philosophically rigorous and so on. For a long time, you can get by on that. And that's great. That's entirely fine. And in fact, the vast majority of Holy Scripture uh, operates like that. Uh, it operates by God pointing to various things that we know intuitively, even if we can't um, give a, a verbal definition, we, we can pick them out in the world. Uh, a rock, a tree, these are, these are things that everyone knows what they are. God will point to these items in our world or within our, our knowledge bank, so to say. So to say. Um, and he'll say that these are similar to him or dissimilar to him. When they're dissimilar to him, we're, we're negating. So God will point to a body and he'll say, I am not a body. Uh, and what we're to gather from that is what we're considering, what we're looking at is dissimilar to God. We're not supposed to conceive of what body is as falling into God. God is not possessed of that, which makes something to be a body. Um, but he'll it'll also point to things in our world that he's similar to, such as, again, wisdom, our stock example. Uh, he'll point to our wisdom. We all kind of know what it is, even though if we struggle to give a proper definition of it. And he'll say that wisdom is similar to to myself. I also am possessed of wisdom. And that's that's kind of how a lot of Holy Scripture operates, and it's perfectly fine to get by like that uh, for the majority of life. Um, if you want to go forward, though, and deeper into theology, then yes, you're going to have to do some legwork in philosophy, where you're preparing your predicates, so to speak. You are Making sure that your mental content of body and what body is, uh, is exactly uh, true definitionally and philosophically true and all all these different things that we might do in philosophy. And then after all that creaturely preparation time in philosophy, we can return to doing theology and with a greater uh, understanding, also remove that now refined mental content from God, just like we would do, um, you know, when we're 10 years old and we're told in catechism class or even younger, God is not a body. He is spirit. Mm. So again, for a lot of the time, it's fine not to know. If you want to go much deeper, though, you're going to have to do some legwork and, and that can take some time.
0: Yeah. So if people remember, this is what we were talking about with knowledge is taken from creatures. Another way we could talk about it is all your predicates, all your names, all your definitions in in common speech is something you have to go out and like touch a tree, you know, put your feet in the grass, you know, feel the sun on your face and know that that's warm. Uh, God gave us the five senses so that we can apprehend and take reality in. And the more that you actually are in tune with the creation God made, the more you are able to trace um, the truth of those things back to their source, but also um, apprehend what a what a body is. And uh, I was thinking about your example of uh, brown, or saying I forget if we were saying uh, Socrates is brown or whatever was brown. And I'm like, what is brown? How could you ever? How could anyone give a definition of brown? I've not actually looked at what the definition of brown is, but I'm like, how do you define colors? <laughs> There's a, um, these are the hard questions. Um, that, uh, you know, uh, the more that you do that work of understanding reality, whether you're taking a biology class in high school and you're understanding how, a how a body works, uh, that can help very much serve you later on when you're thinking about some of these predicates or these names that you're composing or dividing from, from God. Now, uh, you're giving us this first division of divine names. So uh, what we're saying is there's of all the things that scripture makes us to say about God, um, there's lots of things that scripture makes us to say about God, those are all names or predicates. Mm. And we're just trying to organize Mm. all of these names. That's essentially what we're doing, organizing. And positive, negative, could you just restate again? What is a positive name? What is a negative name? What is their essential difference?
1: A positive divine name is a creaturely predicate affirmed of God. And a negative divine name is a creaturely predicate denied or negated from God, removed from God. So stock examples here are God is wise, uh, Wisdom is a positive divine name because it's a creaturely predicate affirmed of God. Um, God is not body. That is an example of a negative name. Bodiness is a creaturely predicate negated of God. Um, And there are lots of other examples. Um, And we often use these very, very simple stock, even duh examples, so to speak, so that we're super laser clear we can gain some clear understanding of fundamental principles on how negative and positive names operate Um, and then we go to more difficult and we might say less obvious ones for example uh, one thing you quickly learn as you think about negative names um, like god is not body you you see that negation part is not and then body Uh, we often for various reasons paraphrase or rephrase this into a affirmation. God is, for example, spirit. In that case, um, you might become confused and think that spirit is an affirmative or a positive name. Like wise, it's something which God is, um, is something that God has spirituality, something like that. Properly speaking and technically speaking, uh, spirituality is just paraphrasing not corporeal or incorporeality. You hear the the negative particle there at the beginning uh, reminds you of the fact that it's a negative judgment. You're saying something God is not. So there's no positive knowledge that you're squeezing out of spirit, even though we say God is spirit, because it's just rephrasing. God is not something. There's no positive content there that we're putting into God and gaining insight into God. We're just gaining insight into what God is not or what's not true of Him. Hmm. So uh, that's one of the very uh, early on things that you you learn. Predicates are often more complicated. Uh, there's a lot that's involved, but we use these initial stock examples so that we can be very square uh, and then make headway in the deeper waters.
0: Ryan, could you say something about the role that imagination plays when you are reading the Bible. So let's say someone reads God is a spirit and maybe they've seen a movie with like ghosts in it. So they know that God is not something you can touch, but now they think he's kind of a ghostly outline where, you know, your hand would go through him if you were to see him. Um, So now, so something's going on in the imagination, and I've kind of made positive, as, as you said, spiritness to mean this ghostly, airy uh, substance or something. Uh, how, how bad is that, or should I not be too worried about that, or um, uh, is that okay for some
1: things but not okay for others? That is a very difficult and involved and important question. A very good one. Um, imagination is, in a certain mode, essential to do theology, but it's also kind of a double edged sword. One of the famous uh, sayings from Boethius. Uh, who is a very important 6th century philosopher, theologian, whom Thomas uh, learned a lot from, references frequently, is that in theology, you must not use your imagination. It's a very, very profound statement. The technical phrasing is uh, you cannot return to imagination uh, when you're considering God. So on the one hand, imagination is essential and important Um, And part of the process of doing theology and coming to know God. But on the other hand, in a different mode, um, it can't be used. And insofar as it's used wrongly, it's therefore going to be very bad and lead you astray. So how is it good? Well, imagination is good in the sense that the vast majority of Holy Scripture gives us images that are... um, Again, taken from our creaturely world, the psalmist will describe God, uh, and it'll talk about God's bow, God's arrows, God's a warrior, all these different pictures that you're going to devise in your imagination. And that's great. You're supposed to do that. Needless to say, um, God is leading you into knowledge. Um, What you're not supposed to do, though, is once you have that image in your head, to stop there. And think that you have, uh, you know, done sufficient work, and you now are knowing God by virtue of the fact that you have reproduced the image in your head that Holy Scripture has made you to uh, to imagine. Uh, again, you're supposed to do this, but this is step one in theology. Step two is to take from that image the relevant um, thing you are to say without an image, uh, in your mind, with your intellect, the thing that you're to compose to God or to negate from God. Um, the image is being used because we are not merely brains without bodies. Uh, neither are we bodies without brains or souls or minds more properly speaking. Um, but God first addresses our body, uh, At the tip of our body, we might say, is our imagination. And from thence, uh, is able to address our minds, our souls, our intellects, which uh, together with this image is able to know something with our mind. So we're supposed to go on from the image to extract the relevant um, idea, if you like, from that image and to either compose it or deny it of God to remove the parts of the image that aren't in God to recognize that the image is metaphorical, things like this. These are all things we do with our mind as we don't allow the tail of the dog to (laughs) wag the dog, so to speak, but rather the image allows us to be put into a proper intellectual state wherein to better know God with our minds rather than with our imagination. Hmm. So imagination is good, even essential, but as Boethius warns, if you think of God via your imagination and you stop there, well, you're you're thinking God is a body. You're believing God is a body and things like that. You're making fundamental errors in theology, and that's very, very bad to do. So uh, it's a two-edged sword, we might say, and you've got to be very careful. Sometimes scholastics like Thomas are presented to people. Uh, I'm even sometimes susceptible to this, to doing this. Being so hard down on imagination that people come away with, with the notion that, oh my, uh, when Holy Scripture is painting this picture of God, I'm just supposed to ignore all that uh, and that's bad and things like that. No, it's only bad when it's put to some other purpose than the actual purpose of God is painting this picture for. Mm-hmm. And we want to make sure that we follow that line Uh, and achieve the end result, the the desire that God has in painting us this picture, rather than just gazing at the picture, if you like, uh, trying to gaze at God as represented in the picture. Mm.
0: Yeah, it makes me think of Psalm 23, which a lot of us grow up knowing. And Psalm 23 makes you into a sheep. And there's something extremely comforting about, you know, being a sheep where God is leading you beside still waters and making you to lie down in green pastures. And I think um, there's, you get this kind of debate in more uh, literature uh, and writing reading circles about um, escapism and like the purpose of literature to uh, kind of draw you out of yourself into some imaginative world. And I think for a lot of my life, I treated imagination as the terminus and Mm -hmm. you can very much use um, even like a Psalm 23. So I'm, I'm having a hard time. I go to Psalm 23 and I experience in my soul, the comfort of God as my strong shepherd, um, you know, leading me through the Valley of the shadow of death. And that's good and right. Um, However, um, It's kind of like the the imagination is the second world of creatures. So my senses are my kind of first Mm -hmm. primary world that generates the images or the the phantasms, the the images in my imagination. And if you stop there, um, Mm -hmm. in strong terms, you're being an idolater because that's not um, (laughs) right. We don't want to fashion God Mm -hmm. after our own imagination. Mm -hmm. So... It's just, okay, that's good. You're getting sense knowledge from creatures. You have images in your imagination and then keep going to say, Mm. what are, what else does scripture make me to say about God that is true from these, um, images. And now I'm abstracting truth from those images. I I did a little test with my wife on the, the body parts of God, um, Mm. And I, I was impressed that her instincts were good, that she knows, of course, God doesn't have a body. So when it says that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God, uh, there's not a big sky hand to which Jesus is sitting to the right of. Um, even though when a lot of people you know, read the creed or hear something like that, your imagination goes, there's a hand and there's Jesus sitting at, at the right of it. And we want to say, okay, that's fine, but that's the metaphor. Now, mm-hmm. what does the metaphor mean? What mm-hmm. is signified by right handness of God? Mm-hmm. And if you don't have this negative name, God is not a body, meaning God does not have mm-hmm. a hand, then you would be prone perhaps to f- your whole life. Just think there's a big sky hand up there um, and and Jesus is sitting to, to the right of it.
1: Um, yeah. Go, go ahead. Yeah. No, I think that that adverts our attention to one of the primary purposes of negative names, like God is not a body. It's to run defense, so to speak, and protect us from thinking falsely. So in the example that you just used, um, God is depicted or portrayed as having a right hand. We imagine God the Father as having a right hand. Um, Again, that's okay, uh, so long as you don't stop there. Um, But what does God is not a body come in and do for us? Well, it tells us that this is a metaphor and isn't supposed to be taken as uh, an actual assertion of God has a right hand. But it's an assertion of something that that is symbolic of. It's a metaphor which has been put for something else. So negative names play defense in theology. They preserve us from error. They tell us what's not true so that we're not distracted, we're not led down a garden path, and we don't err in theology. Uh, And then we have to go on and actually discover what positively is true, why the metaphor was put there in the first place. So negative names have merely that ground-clearing initial stage that's very important, uh, but nonetheless not even close to being sufficient. They don't tell us anything positive here about what it means for God to have a right hand or, mm-hmm. or what it means for God to have a hot nose or something like that. All these different metaphors, especially in Old Testament, um, we kind of all know that they're metaphors. And any good, well-thinking, catechized Christian is often not even so conscious of the fact that these are metaphors. They just automatically know, oh, God has a hand is a metaphor for God is strong for me. God is going to rescue me. God is going to save me, something like that. And they don't have to stop and think, okay, oh boy, we have to make a major negation here and say God is not a body so that we don't make an error. No, their their mind is well working and properly attuned to go the right direction and not stop at the image. Hmm that's great and praise God for that. The issue is all the places in Holy scripture where maybe our mind or our intuitions are not well working, which is where negative theology primarily comes in as a support to uh, guard us uh, and and make sure that we can actually hear what God is saying rather than becoming distracted with what's false and what he's not.
0: Hmm. One of the, uh... Places where I think this distinction between positive and negative names um, really would, pe- I think people will really feel this distinction when they think about holiness. And I think this is one we probably need to do a whole or multiple epi- episodes on, but holiness, kind of like spirit, is one of those see, sounds positive and it's so yeah. common in the Bible. It's very easy to kind of preload what you think holiness is as like righteousness um, Mm -hmm. or um, uh, moral purity or something like that. And then you're saying something positive about God, which I mean, of course, God is morally pure and God is righteous. Um, But I remember taking your class on holiness and just being taught that holiness is not an essential attribute like love or wisdom is, it's mm-hmm. actually the whole distribution of negative theology in a certain sense. Mm-hmm. It's just mm-hmm. disti- It's just distinguished. Um, or what is the Di- Dionysius's definition? Freedom from every uh, uh, impurity, impurity, yeah. and unclean. <laughs> I, f- I forget the exact uh, oh, predicate. And immaculate, yeah, yeah, perfect and immaculate. Yeah. Could you say something a little bit just about holiness and um, this? negative, positive thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, we have to be really careful here because, um, as you say rightly, in a certain mode, holiness isn't like an essential attribute like love or goodness. And what you mean there uh, is that it's not something positive. It's not what God is. When we think of what God is, we think of love, we think of goodness, we think of God knows, um, things like that. But that doesn't mean, of course, that holiness is unimportant or not real or something um you know not proper to God, things like that, which of course I know you're not saying. Um but this gets at the at the issue of the of the difference between negative names and positive names and how oftentimes we tend to even prioritize negative names, uh like holiness, which is freedom from uncleanness, we might say, removal of Uh, The unclean things. God is not among us as something impure. You hear that negation there. Um, Profoundly important negation also throughout Holy Scripture, needless to say, our own lives. Um, But it is something that sets in the highest relief uh, what God is, all the positive things about God, and is noting for us essentially that they're not tainted with the the troubles and the woes and the sicknesses and the sores that are found with us and among creatures, um, rather they still glisten in their in their purity. So yeah, holiness being thought of primarily as a negative name uh, and also allows us to interpret holy scripture, which treats holiness in this kind of fashion. It's the removal of God from various things and, and the setting apart uh, of his name things like this. Um, it helps you do justice to all that biblical data, but also play put holiness in its place, so to speak, uh, as subservient for all the good, positive things that God is, broadly speaking. Hmm. What are some of the other
0: common negative names that people are going to uh, know or encounter just to give them a few more um, let's populate these lists a little more of positive names versus negative names for folks.
1: Yeah, so some some uh, further negative names. Uh, God is incorporeal is is one of the most foundational and the first one uh, honestly that we do in theology is day one day, day two of theology. Day one of theology is God exists. Day two is He's not a body. Um, and you know you're really really starting to get off when, when uh, get get going. When you can get past day two but many other negations um, maybe one would be God is impassable or does not have passions which also isn't a negative name removing creaturely passions from God passions here in the old and very very different sense in many ways from what we think of as passions today passions for, The medievals, passions for the church fathers, um, are one of two things. Often they are disordered feelings or disordered emotions, whether they're excessive or defective or just plain sinful, something like that. Or they are not inherently disordered, um, but nonetheless they are bodily states of affairs, bodily experiences that are Fundamental and important to human persons, of course, and are, um, you know, if you don't have passions in this sense, uh, as a human person, uh, Augustine famously says, well, you might as well not even be a man. To be dead inside um, is not to have passions for a human person. In the case of God, God doesn't have passions in that he has more feelings, we might say, or greater immaterial affections. He doesn't have merely bodily, uh, purely uh, passive uh, states of emotion, but rather he is actively loving. Uh, And so we make this negation to remove either the strictly speaking bodily states of affairs, or if we're talking about passions in in the other sense I mentioned of purely disordered emotions, purely sinful emotions. We would say things like God is not cruel uh, and things like this, obviously very basic that everyone knows. um, We would say, so that would be another important negation that uh, people are going to come across and would be familiar with. And that's easily God is impassable is very easily converted to God is the ice cube in the sky. Um, That's a desperate misunderstanding on many levels of what is meant by impassable. Again, Uh, It even falls prey to the fact of confusing that this is a positive name. Uh, That's the confusion. It's in fact a negative name, not something that God is like an ice cube, frozen, uh, but rather merely something he's not. So it falls prey there and also just doesn't understand what passions in this hyper-technical, very philosophical sense actually means. So that would be one. Another would be God is infinite, and this is one of those negative names that's really helpful because it still has that negative part at the beginning there, infinite, non-finite, you hear in English. It's simply rephrasing uh, the negation, the negative judgment, God is not finite. He doesn't have any boundaries. He doesn't have any limits. Um, things like this is infinity is a bit more technical, but that's getting in the right direction. Another negative name that maybe uh, the average churchgoer wouldn't be so familiar with, but a lot of guys who spend time on the internet and in theology chat rooms or whatever might know of would be God is simple. Um, This is everybody's rage today. If you you do theology on Twitter, uh, you're probably either very, very much pro-simplicity or very, very much anti-simplicity. There's no middle ground. Um, But simplicity properly understood. God is simple is, again, paraphrasing the negation, God is not composite. Composite in various kinds of of ways Um we would want to get into to uh, continue further. But this would be another example of a negative name that people might come across. Hmm.
0: So one of the things I've noticed as I've read different treatments, especially in St. Thomas on negative names, is a lot of them are kind of overlapping there's um so even like impassable is kind of almost like a subset of uh, incorporeal and incorporeal is kind of a subset of simplicity and there's different kinds of uh uh compositions of form and matter or different things that we we want to say here here's a composition over here god's not it here's a composition over here god's god's not that um or even mm. uh immutable or God is unchangeable. Mm-hmm. I think I think mm-hmm. this one is um, a little bit easier to just see from the text of scripture, whether you're reading mm-hmm. the Psalms that just God says, I do not change. I, I am mm-hmm. not a man. I do not change. And I think where uh, some people have questions is when it says that God doesn't change and then God is said to change his mind or repent mm-hmm. or relent or uh, often in the same chapter. So um, mm-hmm. it, if this isn't going to take us too far afield, could you just say a comment about how something like a, a God repenting, God doesn't change how those two things, how we should understand that when we're mm-hmm. reading that
1: in, in the Bible? Yeah, that's a, a very classic uh, example the seeming face-off or opposition between God is immutable versus the many instances where he is said in Holy Scripture to change his mind to repent. Um, it's been well worked through throughout the tradition and is a bit more technical, which always makes me want to revert to something really, really simple and really clear to understand As an analogy a good a good illustration of what we're going to do in this more difficult case so think of the correspondence situation between saying on the one hand god is incorporeal and god has a hand so here we have a similar situation where on the on 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 the one side we say god does not have a body he does have a body namely a body part what do we do well, um, the negation adverts us to the fact that the affirmation was metaphorical. Metaphorical, not in the sense that often we think of as metaphor today, which de-realizes or dials down the color or something like that. People think of metaphor, they usually think of literary studies. That's not what we mean by Metaphor in theology and philosophy. Metaphor in theology and philosophy is something that's put for something else. Something that's put for something else. In fact, that's just a translation of the Greek word metaphor, also translating into Latin. So uh, in the case of God is not a body versus God has a hand, God is not a body adverts us to the fact that God has a hand was a metaphor. Hand is being put for something else. Namely, God supports. Likewise, when we get to God is immutable or unchangeable and God changes his mind, the negation doesn't come along and like uh, mess with the affirmation God changes his mind or like, cut it off at the knees or something like that. But it adverts us to the fact that God changes his mind can only be true of God when it's understood as a metaphor. Because of course we know Holy Scripture always tells us the truth. When it says God repents or changes mind, it's intended metaphorically, namely, it puts changing his mind for something else. Now, then the question comes, what is the something else that changing his mind was put for? And that is a very good question. Um, It varies sometimes in Holy Scripture. We use metaphors for all sorts of things. um, And similarly, we find in Holy Scripture. So God changes his mind, could be put for um, some creaturely happenstance changed. And therefore, God was similar to somebody who changed his mind. Um, Things like this. Um, Augustine will say God changes his mind is put for differences in divine providence. Um, So these are all important questions to resolve. But at the very face of it, that issue of God doesn't change his mind. God does change his mind. This face off. Oh, my. What are we going to do? All that we see is the negation adverts us to the fact that the affirmation was metaphorical. It doesn't come along and chase in it or cut it off at the knees. Even though sometimes in our experience of reading texts together and allowing scripture to interpret scripture, it kind of feels like God doesn't change, comes over and crosses out. Um, I'll sometimes even speak like that in theology. But technically, it just adverts us To the fact, to the truth, that God changes his mind is metaphorical. Just like God is incorporeal, adverts us to the fact that God has a hand, wasn't meant, uh, put for us to affirm hand of God, but put for something else, namely God supports, something like that.
0: Mm. That's good. Yeah, I was talking with my wife about this last night, about God repenting. I think my wife's reading in, in Exodus where... Uh, God wants to destroy Israel after they come out of Egypt and we were kind of working through what does it mean when God's like, yeah, I, I just regret that I did, I did this. And so now now here's the the preacher, the pastor in me think, I'm always thinking about a practical application from the text. And uh, if I was preaching such a text, when God repents because God doesn't change, the the application for you is you need to repent. <laughs> if God is saying he needs to repent, um it probably means you actually whatever you were doing that was making him want to repent, you need to actually do the cha- do mm-hmm. the changing. Um and I found that that's that's often the case in some as you said, sometimes it means one thing, sometimes another, but often um it's it's usually a safe judgment to say you need, you're the one that needs to repent or Nineveh needs to repent or Israel needs to repent because they kind of always, they kind of always do. All right. Any uh, final reflections on this distinction between uh, negative names and positive names before we uh, wrap up?
1: I don't think so. It's just um, more of the same. Uh, It just gets more technical from here. And also the payoff becomes clearer and clearer from here. When you're really, really precise, even a little bit pedantic at first, um, as you go along, you're able to do stronger and more powerful things. Remember what Aristotle said, that a small error at the beginning is a big mistake by the end. So being super, super laser clear about these fundamental distinctions and what is a negative name versus a positive name, even using these obvious or duh examples helps preserve us when we get to the more technical and more difficult areas down the road where we also see some more of the payoff of these kinds of distinctions. Mm.
0: Yeah, so I remember when I first learned this distinction, I think everyone has to kind of go through this phase uh, of um, categorizing and trying to organize different texts. You think of the teacher gives you the worksheet. So yeah, you kind of do need a worksheet and it's a great... um, So much of learning to read the Bible is just knowing what questions to ask and asking the right questions. Mm. And Mm. if you start thinking in terms of predicates, you get to something you don't understand and you're trying to figure out, okay, what is being predicated of God? If I could just break it down into its predicating uh, uh, anger of God or repentance of God or whatever the thing is, try to break it down and get in your mind what that thing is. Uh, Mm. But As with the John 4, the God is a spirit, ask yourself, all right, is this paraphrastic for a negative name? Because often they're veiled that way. And even sometimes the translation of the Greek or Hebrew will do this where it'll put the Hebrew will literally be, you know, God's nose waxed hot. Um, And they'll just translate it as anger when you Mm. most people know, like, of course, he doesn't have a nose and his nose doesn't get hot, but. We already even in our translations are doing a little bit of theology to do that. So it's a good practice, I think, to just start thinking, is this a positive name? Is this a negative name? And sometimes there will be a, the teacher will put a tricky one on the, on the worksheet. It'll look like a positive name, but it's actually a negative name. Uh, Any advice for folks as they start doing some of the, this initial um, uh, categorizing or, or warnings
1: for folks as they do this? Oh boy! Um, warnings and, and encouragements. You know, I—that's hmm, just such a good question. I have to think about that. You know, I don't know. Aaron, ask me. Ask me at the beginning of next ne- next yeah. ep- episode because that's a really important question, and I'll, I'll come back with some more thoughtful thoughts <laughs> of uh, answering. Yeah, encouragements, little little warnings or discouragements of things not to do about this because this is an important issue, and yeah. As people practice things to watch out for, things to be encouraged by, I'll think about that and get back. Okay. So if
0: you're out there and you're going to start practicing and you come across one that you're not sure about, send it to us. And maybe uh, we'll, we'll see if uh, Ryan can help us out with, uh, is that a negative name? Is that a positive name? Is that a paraphrastic name? And uh, we're just getting started because there's more distinctions within negative names and positive names that eventually we'll get to. But let's just start here. Is it a positive name? Is it a is not or is it an is? That's all you need to think. Am I saying is not or is of God? And and it's that simple, positive name, neg- negative name. All right, well, let me uh, close again with uh, John four twenty four. Jesus says, God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. I hope you will uh, do that. Uh, until next time, keep on reading.